There's been a man in the news recently that was once a famous Christian. You could call him Christian famous. His name is Josh Harris. I'm not following news that much or blogs that much these days, but I did come across this news story. Josh Harris wrote a book a long time ago, 1997, the 90s, don't seem that long ago, but a long time ago, 20-some years ago, called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, in which he talked about how basically it was, it was a spur of the purity movement within Christianity and led to, led to people doing this courting thing instead of dating. Anyway, it made him really famous, and it, they sold 1.2 million copies in 1997. He went on to write several other books in a similar vein. And then in 2004, after serving on staff at a church, he became the lead pastor of Covenant Life Church in Maryland. He served there for almost 11 years until he left in 2015. At that time, he decided he was going to pursue other forms of the Christian faith, other forms of Christianity, which he had not explored yet. And recently, the news came out, he announced that he and his wife were divorcing. He and his wife of 20 years were divorcing. And then even more recently, he made an announcement that not only was he leaving his wife, he was leaving the faith. A man who had been a pastor for years. A man who was famous in Christian circles, who had written books, falling away from the faith. What do we make of this? Well, first of all, we would be clear that God in His sovereignty has chosen a people for Himself and all those whom He draws to Himself are in God's hand and uh, the Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, all those who are in His hand cannot be snatched out. Those who have been born again will be preserved until the very end. And so this means Josh Harris was never in the hand of Jesus Christ since he has renounced the faith. As I think about this, and as I think about this sermon, as I think about the introductions of my sermons, I'm often thinking, why do people need to hear this? Like, what, is, what, is, what do they need from this? What do your people need from this sermon, God? And what you need from this sermon, this sermon in itself is not going to save you or preserve you. But the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ week in and week out is what God uses. One of God's means to preserve you, brothers and sisters, in the faith. Hear the proclamation of his word. Hear the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and be confirmed in your faith. Know that it is Jesus Christ, not yourself, who will hold you firm to the end and preserve you. There is a danger, right, of falling away. There's a danger that those who once professed faith in Christ were never in his hand. But I have better things in mind for you, brothers and sisters. Hold fast to the word of faith. Hold fast to the good news, which is Jesus Christ crucified for you. And I pray that the Lord will use this sermon as well as the sermon next week and next week and over the next 10 years to keep you firm in the faith. The theme of our sermon this morning is it's all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus and this particular hour to which he has come in the gospel.
the coming of Jesus' hour results in several things. We saw last week, Jesus has said, my hour has now come. The hour of the Son of Man has, has come to be glorified. And by that, he meant glorified in his death for sinners. And he said, it will bear much fruit if I die. The, we'll see today the fruit which his death bears, at least some of it. And it's this, the coming of Jesus' hour results in the glory of the Father, in the judgment of the devil, and in the drawing of all God's people to himself. The coming of Jesus' hour results in the glory of the Father, the disarming of the devil, the judgment of the devil, and the drawing of God's people to himself. First, let's consider how this hour results in glory to the Father. We see that in verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You notice the difficulty of this hour. We see the humanity of Jesus in this passage. He knows the terrors of which he's about to face. He knows the suffering he's going to face, the beatings, the mockings. He knows all of what's ahead of him, and he knows intimately not only the physical suffering that he will face, but the spiritual torment he he faces as he suffers under the very hand of his father, as he suffers under the wrath of God. He knows all of this. And then as he comes to this hour, he says, now is my soul in turmoil within me. Jesus didn't just appear to be human. He didn't just appear to be within turmoil. He didn't just appear to be troubled. His soul was deeply troubled within him. He knew the horrors that he would face. And what shall I say? What what do we do when we face certain situations? We want to figure out. I want to figure out first, how do I get out of this mess? How can I get out from under this suffering as quickly as possible? So Jesus, in a sense, speaking aloud, says, And what shall I say to this? When I come to this difficulty, this hour... What should I say? In in particular, what should I say to the Father? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? That's a potential prayer that Jesus could have made. And we know he made one like that. Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not my will be done, but yours. But instead of this potential prayer, notice what he actually prays. Instead of, Father, save me from this hour, he prays, Father, glorify your name. This is the very purpose for which I've come to this hour, that the name of my Father might be glorified. You notice those two prayers, two prayers that we're often tempted to make ourselves. What do we pray when we're in suffering? Most of the time, we pray, Father, save me from this hour. Save me from this suffering. Save me from this trial. Get me out of this. Take away my pain. Take away this difficult relationship. Take away this problem. Just get it out of the way. Rescue from this, me from this immediately. How, how often our prayers can be so selfish, so narrow-minded. 
Like we think the only good that God has for us in a trial is to rescue us from it, to get us out of it as soon as possible. Well, what, what I want us to see here is not simply Jesus as an example to us, but Jesus as the one who succeeds where we fail every time. When we're in a trial, often we don't pray, God, glorify your name through this. Through this suffering, through this sorrows, through this brokenness, glorify your name. And Jesus has more suffering than we could ever imagine in front of him. And instead of praying a prayer simply for himself and his own comfort or convenience or safety, he prays, Father, glorify your name in this. In other words, he resolves that he is going to go forward to this hour which has been planned for him. He's going to go forward in fulfilling the glory of God in obedience to the plan that God had for him in this hour. This plan of suffering. This plan which would result in his crucifixion and his death. God, the Father, confirmed to Jesus, I have glorified and I will glorify it. In other words, in Jesus' life, Every step of the way in his perfect obedience, thought, word, and deed. He never failed. He perfectly glorified God the Father. What we should have done. We were created for his glory. You were created that everything you say, everything you do, everything you think would redound to the glory of God and we have failed in sinfulness. And yet Jesus fulfills God's purpose for him. I have glorified it and I will glorify it as you come to this hour and the Son of Man is lifted up. The coming of Jesus' hour results in the glory of the Father. But also notice in verses 29 through 31 that it results in judgment. In judgment of God's enemies. It it results in judgment in two ways in this particular passage. Judgment over those who reject Jesus and judgment over devil the, the devil the ruler of this world look at those verses the crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered others said an angel has spoken to him and jesus answered this voice has come for your sake not mine that's interesting isn't it G- uh, the, the crowds hear something going on they hear what they think is thunder some say well maybe it was an angel speaking to him uh, and jesus says it was For their benefit, not mine, even though they couldn't understand the voice. Imagine the scene, though. Jesus is praying. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then, as soon as those words are out of his lips, the crowds hear, boom, 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 thunder rumbling in the distance. It would be kind of creepy. You, You would think, wow, something weird is going on here. Something supernatural is going on here. But they didn't hear the words that were spoken. And so how can Jesus say it was for your sake, not for mine? Well, although it would have been a, an encouragement to Jesus in his humanity, a confirmation, yes, you are glorifying yourself through me. It was intended primarily for the crowds, and I think we would do well to follow along with Jesus' thoughts here in how it was for their sake. So we follow on in verse 
31. The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. They hear the thunder of God's judgment as the world is rejecting God, the Creator, coming down in human flesh. The voice of the Father saying, I will glorify you through your being lifted up was also the voice of judgment for any and all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. The light has come into the world, but people prefer the darkness rather than the light. He came to his own, and yet his own did not receive him. They rejected the Messiah, the Son of Man who has come. And this, as Jesus comes to the hour, his being lifted up on the cross is not only salvation for God's people, but judgment for all who reject him. It is judgment on those who reject him, and it is also a judgment on the devil, as we see in that next verse. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So there's judgment on those who reject Christ, and there's judgment on the ruler of this world, Satan, the devil. Jesus, as he comes to this hour of suffering and being lifted up on the cross, disarms the devil. He, he casts out the devil, devil. This word is often used throughout the gospel when Jesus casts out demons. In the same way, Jesus being lifted up on the cross, Jesus casts out the devil. The ruler of this world is disarmed. Or as the scripture says in the Old Testament, the offspring of Adam and Eve crushes the head of the serpent. He's defeated. Now the emphasis here in Jesus' words is on the victory that Jesus has over, de- over the devil. He has victory. He has cast him out. He has disarmed him. But we also know that we still suffer in this life. As Landon spoke earlier, that we still suffer death. So in what way can we see and How does Jesus disarm the devil? How does he cast him out when he comes to this hour as he is lifted up? Well, as one theologian, Herman Bavink, says, Jesus, in his death, takes away the weapons at Satan's disposal. He takes away the weapons of death and sin. In other words, as other pastors and preachers have said, Satan is a, a fangless serpent. The sting has been removed. The tools of the devil are death and sin, by which he can not only draw people away into temptation, but he, he can lead them to eternal death in their sin as they suffer death not only physically, but in eternity away from the presence of the Lord. And by the death of Jesus Christ, he has put an end to death. He has killed death. He has put death in its grave. As we sang this morning, he arrested death. It has no power over any and all who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by his death on the cross for you. What is emphasized here is this finality of Jesus's victory. And yet we would do well well to be careful here. We have to add nuance to our understanding of what it means that Satan has been cast out because there is a sense in which you are uh, continued to be tempted. 
in which he still wants to lead you away. And we live in this life in which those who profess faith in Jesus fall away, like we spoke about Joshua Harris. And in this, this sense, we theologians speak of eschatology or the end times in a very simple way, simplistic way almost. Eschatology refers to the end times. And we can have an either uh, under-realized eschatology or an over-realized eschatology. Have you heard those terms before? So end times and eschatology refers to the end times. If we have an under-realized eschatology, we may think we haven't seen any victory yet. We're waiting for all that God has for us in the next life. We don't get any benefits in this life. Rather, we're just, we're just going through life. We don't have any victory over sin. We don't have any joy. We're waiting or we could have an overrealized eschatology where we have received everything that God has for us. And we have uh, joy and happiness and health and wealth. And we should expect it all in the here and now. Right? That's sometimes what we would call the prosperity gospel. That's an overrealized eschatology. Yes, you're going to get all of those things. You're going to get a new body. You're going to be free from sin. You're going to free, be free from disease and sickness and death. But that something we wait for in the new heavens and the new earth think of it like this let's say parents have done a good job saving up for their children how many parents of you faithfully you've been putting away money and there's a huge uh, savings account for your son or daughter when they get a certain age a lot of smiles in the room right it's challenging so imagine this son who has the savings account saved up for him he's 11 years old It is his savings account, right? His parents are setting this aside for him. It belongs to him. It's his inheritance. And when he turns 18, he gets, or 20, or however the age you set, he gets the full account for himself. But he doesn't get it until that point. In the meantime, it is his, and he receives some benefits here and now. As his parents deem necessary for certain items, for school, or for For other necessities, they're able to take from that money and give him some of the benefits now. He tastes some of it now. He tastes a deposit of it here and now, and yet he knows further down the line, that's where my full reward comes. Well, brothers and sisters, in the same way, we have tastes of the heavenly realities here and now. If you are in Christ, you have a deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have all the riches in Christ stored up for you. Not all to be enjoyed now, but you are waiting patiently until they come. And one of those good foretastes of the the kingdom that we will experience in heaven is when Satan is finally and fully destroyed, never to harm God's people ever again. We have a foretaste of that here. Jesus has won the victory. The devil has been cast out, and now we're waiting patiently until he returns to put a final end. Well, what do you do when a ruler, a bad ruler, is cast out? What do you do when a bad ruler is overthrown? Well, the people rush out into the streets, and they rejoice. Jesus has won our victory. He has trampled over death and sin. He has cast out the devil, and he has won the victory by his blood. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, in what do you rejoice? What gives you joy in this life? 
if you know me, you know I'm a Washington Nationals fans and I, fan, and I have been known occasionally to wake up the family with my yells when there's a walk-off home run or something. Yes! Awesome! They won the game! In what do we rejoice? Is it simply in baseball games? Is it simply in the getting a, an unexpected check, an unexpected payout? Is it in getting a raise? In what or in whom do you rejoice, brothers and sisters? Rejoice in this. Jesus Christ has won the victory by his death. If you are in him, if you have come to faith in Jesus, you have been forgiven of all of your sins. You have been given eternal life in Jesus Christ and you have an inheritance that is unfading and kept for you in heaven by God's power. Rejoice in this, brothers and sisters. Not that you get to enjoy life in this, this present temporal world, but that your, your names are written in the book of life. That you have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Consider finally the drawing of God's people to himself in this hour of Jesus being lifted up. Verses 32 and 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We get the benefit of John explaining to us what Jesus meant by him being lifted up. We've seen this term before. We've seen it earlier when Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everybody who turns their eyes to him in faith would be saved. Jesus being lifted up is speaking of his death, particularly his death on a cross. When I am lifted up, this, this is the hour that he's coming to, this suffering, everything, everything in the gospel is moving towards this hour, this point where Jesus Christ will be lifted up, where he will be glorified, and God will be glorified, and God's enemies will be judged. And then he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. We've also seen the term, this, this Jesus speaking of drawing people to himself. We saw that in chapter 6, verse 44, in which the scripture says, No one can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father draws him to me. So there's this, there's this supernatural work going on in drawing God's people to himself. So there's an, there's an outward call of the gospel. That's as I proclaim Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners. Turn in repentance and faith to him. Embrace him. See him as your treasure. That's the outward call of the gospel. And the inward call of the gospel is the Holy Spirit who moves and grabs your heart and changes your heart and makes you treasure Jesus Christ. He's speaking of this inward call here of the gospel. When I am lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. Don't get hung up on the all people. He's speaking there of Jews and Gentiles, of all kinds of people who are called by, by name. So God chooses a people for himself and then he draws them by his Holy Spirit through the outward proclamation of the gospel. And by their changed hearts, they come to faith in Jesus Christ. They come to see him as a precious treasure. 
you've been to my house, you've met my dog, Violet. She's a little Jack Russell Terrier mix. And if you get to know Violet, you know one thing. She does not like to walk. I was excited about getting a, a Jack Russell mix because I thought I'd have a jogging partner. But the very first time I tried to take her on a jog, I took her out on a leash. I started jogging. I was in the road, and she laid down in the middle of the road. And I dragged her a few feet. <laughs> like, come on, what are you doing? And even now, if I take her on a walk, if somebody in the family takes her on a walk, you have her on the leash, and she does not want to go. You've got to kind of tug on her a little bit. We're gentle with her. But she doesn't want to go. Come on, you've got to come. We kind of drag her along. We put some food in front of her sometimes. Drag her along. In a sense, we could see this is how... This is how Jesus draws people to himself through his death and by the Holy Spirit. And yet, it's different because it's not against our wills that he draws us. Rather, he turns our wills so that we see what is true. He turns our wills so that we see God is glorious. Jesus Christ is the perfect treasure, and he draws us along to himself. If only I could somehow change Violet's heart to see it would be good for her to go for a walk. You know, if I could change it so that she would enjoy going for a walk, so that I would turn her will and not just pull her against her will. Jesus, by his death on the cross, has turned our hearts and our wills towards him to see him as the perfect treasure that he is. And he does this uh, as a, a main cause of this we could say, is his being lifted up on the cross. Because without him being lifted up on the cross, the Spirit does not draw us to himself. Right? This is the point to which the Spirit draws us. He draws us to the cross. Like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, he draws him to the cross where his burden falls off and he clings in faith to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if, this, if you are a, a brother or sister in Christ, this has happened to you. God drew you by His Holy Spirit to change your heart, to love Him, to treasure Him, to rejoice in who He is for you. And what that does for us, it gives us a great humility. There should, there should be no such thing as a prideful Christian. How can that be? How can there be an arrogant Christian when we know that we brought nothing to God? Anything that we have, faith in Christ, joy in Christ, the Holy Spirit within us, hasn't been earned by us, but has been merited by Jesus Christ and is a free gift to us because of God's grace. You cannot have pride and consistently be a Christian. Oh, that we would be humbled by His grace not only produces humility, it also gives us great confidence in preaching the gospel, in sharing the gospel with other people because God, by His grace, will draw those who are His to Himself. No ifs, ands, or buts. He will draw them. He will draw His people to Himself through Jesus Christ and His work for sinners. Well, the crowds are confused and you notice they come up with a theological dispute. Well, who is this Son of Man? Who is this Messiah? They're wanting to dispute further about the relationship between these two identities in the Old Testament. And Jesus cuts to the chase. He says, 
Basically, you have had enough evidence already. Let's just stop all the arguing about theology, about who the Son of Man is, who the, the Messiah is. You've had enough. He's had enough. And so what does he say in verse 35? The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. He turns their theological disputes to a moral decision point. Look, you won't have me here much longer. The light is here only a little longer. Walk in the light. Trust in the light while you have an opportunity. And then what do we see in the next verse? When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Almost an act of judgment. There goes the light. It's gone. As I preach the gospel now, you could say something similar. Cling to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ while you still have opportunity. As you hear the gospel preached, do not reject it any longer. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. He calls all people, men, women, and children, to himself. Believe in the light while you have opportunity. As Jesus comes to this hour, he will glorify the Father in all of these ways. In all of this, God receives glory from the Son. And this is, this is central to Jesus' purpose. This is central to his concern that the Lord Jesus, that, that the Father would be glorified by his life, by everything that he does, by obedience to the Father. And then when, when he gives us his Holy Spirit, he makes us the same way. He gives us a central concern to glorify God Almighty in sickness, in suffering, in death. This is our aim, brothers and sisters. Lord, glorify your name through my life, through my trials, through my sufferings. Glorify yourself through me. A pastor many years ago was by the name of James Montgomery Boyce. He was pastor for about 30 years at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was pastor there from 1968 until his death in, I think, June 2000. But just before his death, maybe a month before his death, he addressed his congregation about what was going on with his health. And I just want to read to you his word. It takes about two or three minutes. But I thought it was so helpful in us thinking about living and dying for the glory of God. Here's what he said to them. We're getting emails from practically everywhere, and some of the reports are quite bizarre. Let me just give you a summation of what has happened. I had been feeling quite good until recently, but about the time of these tests, I was not feeling well. And when I came back from Chicago, I went to the doctor and had a number of tests. And the bottom line of that is that they diagnosed me with liver cancer. Then it takes a little while to figure out exactly what kind of treatment you need. So I've consulted a number of eminent physicians. And there's this one that screens everything and, and gets patients into the hands of specialists. So I feel that I have a very good guidance. And the bottom line of the treatment is that I'm at Fox Chase Cancer Center. I'm in the, the care of a man named Paul Ingstrom. And what I'm receiving at the moment 
beginning last Thursday, is standard chemotherapy for cancer. It's hard to tell where that comes out. Liver cancer is a very serious thing. They do get response from treatment in a percentage of cases, but it's relatively small. And as far as I can tell, we're doing the best thing we can. A number of you have asked what you can do. And it strikes me that what you can do, you are doing. This is a good congregation, and you do the right things. You are praying, certainly, and I've been assured that, of that by my people. And I know of many meetings that have been going on. A relevant question, I guess, when you pray, is pray for what? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and He certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. I think it's far more profitable to pray for wisdom for the doctors. Doctors have a great deal of experience, of course, in their expertise, but they're not omniscient. They do make mistakes, and then also for the effectiveness of the treatment. Sometimes it does very well and sometimes not so well. And that's certainly a legitimate thing to pray for. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying Himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified Himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though He could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my Father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. Consider, brothers and sisters, where might God be pleased to glorify his name through you? Let's pray together.